1: Mm, welcome to the Doctor Joe
2: show. <laughs> yeah. Thunderous applause! Thunderous
3: applause and well deserved. Wow, Larry! Woo, that's a
1: great! That's incredible! I never knew Larry could make. They that love you. They love you, Dr. Joe. They a, all love you.
3: Oh, I'm, I think it's about your introduction. I don't think... It's oh, no, about
1: this you. is the Dr. Joe show. They are cheering for you, my friend.
3: Nice of you. Thank you so much, Mark. Taps right into our guest for tonight, because she certainly is a creator. It's created shows for other people. Her dad was a creator. Tom, can you introduce our guest for tonight, please?
2: Yeah. Dr. Joe... Our guest was born in the Netherlands and was dancing as soon as she learned to walk. After moving to New York City, she became the youngest apprentice in the Dance Theater of Harlem and quickly moved on to become a featured dancer in the Emmy award-winning television special, Blues and Gone. After appearing as a dancer in the Francis Ford Coppola film, The Cotton Club, she graduated from Carnegie Mellon University moved to Europe and continued her dance career. Upon her return to the States, she teamed with Peter Wise and associates and began casting national commercials and theater productions like the Broadway smash hit Smokey Joe's Cafe. In addition to writing a full length musical, a narrative tribute of her father's contribution for PBS television and contributions to the books before I got here, the wondrous things we hear when we listen to the souls of our children and not in my family aids in the African-American community. She Mm -hmm. joyously celebrates life with her husband and two children, Welcome back to The Dr. Joe Show, Alexis Wilson. Yeah, welcome hey. back, welcome. Alexis
3: Wilson. Nice to be here. It is great having you. So how have things been since we chatted last? We, we saw each other in June of, for the 50th yeah. anniversary of Zoom. Well, what's you know, been going
0: on? Life just keeps rolling along. Yeah. Um, well, I've been working on a production that I just finished with High School Kids Drama. Um, for um, BIPOC kids, black kids and kids of color, we created um, an additional piece to a drama department, a wonderful drama department um, here where I live. Um, so I finished that. And then I also recently got hired um, by Denison University to be the career coach for the visual written and performing arts, which they didn't have before. So that's a brand new gig that I started March or April or something.
3: No, that's so great. I'm still trying to
0: get my sea legs. Yeah. yeah. So that's been
3: keeping it busy. I bet it has. And, and just so people understand some of the history here, Alexis' dad, Billy Wilson, uh, was the choreographer for Zoom, which was a TV show that I happened to be part of. So I knew Billy 50 years ago an incredible, incredible, dynamic human being who just brought joy, really. And I'm I'm not just saying this. He was joyous to work with him. And he was creative and gave us all sorts of room to be creative ourselves. And, and, And I wanted Alexis to come on tonight because she's written a book, not so black and white. And it's... It's a memoir, and I wonder whether we can just start just by talking about the title, because these days, not so black and white may have a different connotation than what you're really talking about in the book.
0: Yeah, so I think most people, um, when they see the title or they think of the phrase not so black and white, and especially if they see me and know anything about me, then they're thinking about my black and whiteness, since my mother. Is white, Dutch, and my father was um, African American. Um, but it's actually about sort of the space between the bars. It's really the, the gray of a life. And that it took me a long time through just growing up and maturing to see that the world is not always as stark and sort of obsolete in those terms, you know, either this or that. Um, and it also has to do with love and. As James Baldwin said, the "Love is where you find it. You don't always know where that's coming from, what package it's wrapped in, what it looks like or sounds like, or any of those things. But then, of course, it's up to you to accept or, you know, or turn away that that love that's coming to you. But the point is, is that um, these are all things that you sort of you think you have a handle on, but then you realize that life is more complicated than that."
3: Mm. And you wrote the book about, what, 10 years ago. What inspired you to write at that point?
0: Um, well, so 2013, I think, is when the book was published, 2012, 2013. And um, it took me 10 years. to. I gave myself 10 years because I, we were just starting our family. Um, but what had happened was the night that my father died, um at um St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan which actually doesn't even exist anymore. Um I was there with my my husband, my brother, a dear friend of the family and another dear friend of the family Arthur Mitchell who was co-founder of dance of Harlem and very important in my life and a dear friend of my father's and um we were all there and Mr. Mitchell and I were standing in the hallway or just out, yeah, just outside of his room. After he passed, we all sort of had our moment, and um, he said to me, "So, what are you going to do now, Holly, which is my nickname?" And I said, "I don't know." And he said, "Well, you should write your father's biography." Hmm. And I said, "I will," not knowing what that meant, or you know. Um, and then when I started to write the book, I started out that way but it didn't feel like mine. I didn't want to write sort of the ABC kind of, you know, book. And maybe that still needs to happen. And I don't, you know, whether that's me or someone else, but what happened was it sort of morphed more into my story with my father and this sort of unusual life that we had, but that I had growing up with him.
3: And and it it starts off, with you on an airplane.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
3: Yep. And you were going back to the Netherlands?
0: I was going back to the Netherlands because um, I happened to be online and um, I saw that there was a, a Dutch production of bubbling brown sugar being done in Amsterdam. And I've been the executrix of my father's estate so I'm in charge of all the work and I knew nothing about this so I was kind of furious because they'd done a whole tour and this was the end of the tour and so I decided that I was going to get on a plane and just sort of make my presence known I had no I I couldn't go to the mattresses I didn't have that kind of financial wherewithal to just hire attorneys and make a whole drama of it but I want to at least let them know that I was still here. And that the correct thing would have been to at least contact me. Um, so that's that's how that began. And then it ends that way, which actually wasn't the original um, beginning of the book. Oh, really? Yeah. For a long time, um, the book started sort of. At the 11 o'clock number in the book, which is Chip running through the street with that Afghan over his head. He's having this men- mental breakdown and running on 7th Avenue in the middle of the night. And we're trying to get him back into St. Vincent's Hospital after he had escaped or I should say, you know, got out of that hospital. Um, and it's just a crazy, crazy night. And that's how the book started. Um, I, st- I see things very cinematically. So, I I wanted to do something that was a little more interesting than sort of the, you know, sort of logical kind of way in terms of, uh, uh, you know, right sequence that you would you would imagine, you know, based on years or something like that. Um, But then after a while, I had spoken to an agent um, and I really respected her. And she said, I don't know, it's something about the structure. She said, you might just want to try doing it in a linear way. And so I took a summer and I did it that way. And I realized <clears throat> pardon me that yes, this was better because mm-hmm. it didn't make the reader work as hard with the kind of flashback and things moving all around.
3: But what we what we were talking about off air was I was asking Alexis, because you know, she's been interviewed, you've been interviewed many, many times, and I did ask Was there a question that nobody had asked that you kind of wish they had? So that's my question.
0: Yeah. So I was saying to you that I guess I was surprised that more people didn't ask a little bit more about how I dealt with or responded to my father and chip.
3: So let's do some table setting for this then. Okay. mm -hmm. Um, so we can get deeper into that. Why don't you just give us a basic overview of the book and how you start talking about your mom and why you talk about your mom and where you go from there. And then we'll get into this deeper part about, about Billy and Chip.
0: So, as I said, it's about my life growing up with my father. Um, my parents, you mean going back to sort of how my parents met or- yeah, so, sure. That's, that's yeah. True. So so my parents met um my father was in the London tour of West Side Story with Cheetah Rivera, um, dancer in the chorus. And my mother was a baby ballerina with the National Ballet of Holland, um, Dutch national ballet. And she's
3: African American and she was white.
0: And she still is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and <enough>. and, uh, <laughs> and so only because she's still with us and my father um so the directress madame Sonia Gaskell of the Dutch National um saw the show West Side Story and saw my father in the show and invited him to dance as a soloist and that's how he came to Holland and danced with my mother and they became ballet stars together and they were very arresting looking gorgeous and um had an incredibly celebrated life together um they fell in love they married i was born there in the hague
3: and he was he was already married is that right
0: he was he was originally married at 19 he got married to a a girl from philadelphia but it seemed like that was never really going to happen Mm -hmm. and um he actually told me a story of how he had called he had been trying to get her to come over to to holland and she kept saying no for whatever reason and he gave after seeing my mother um he gave her one last call and she still said no and then he decided he would go that way so um so then fast forward um we're into sort of the mid-60s and my father is feeling pulled to come back to the states we're in the black revolution and um all that's happening here and he feels like he doesn't want to experience that by proxy and so wants to be back home mm. uh, during that time of important change. So he uh, wants to secure a job before we all come there. I'd just been born. I was weeks old and he got a job um heading the dance department at Brandeis University. And then my mother came with my with me, um, Tiny, to Waltham Mass and um, she left everything behind right she left her her family her country her language a very protected ballet world and all that she knew and and all of that you know that was so celebrated um to follow this black man back to the states in the mid-60s to Massachusetts by the way you know a hotbed of what was happening there um so first Waltham then they went back to to Europe, all of us for a little bit, ended up coming back in 69 and staying, Um, then moved to Boston, and they started their own ballet company called The Dance of Boston. Um, My brother Parker was born five years later. By that time, things were sort of getting rocky in the marriage, and um, they separate, after Zoom, after he choreographed Zoom, he got a call from um New York because by this time and with the company he was choreographing more and more and started to dance less and less um and he got a company from the Odyssey starring uh your brother Joan Diener and that was the first Broadway show that brought him to Broadway and by that time things were finished so when they sat down to talk about what what was going to happen with us um my mother really surprised everybody and said even even her own attorney and said you take them you take the children wow. which never would have happened at that time in boston mass that this black man would have full custody of two young children wow. only because my mother said you take them so he did and by then he was had can, can I just stop,
3: stop yeah just for a minute yeah. so how old were you at that point alexis
0: So when my parents divorced, I was 11. So So
3: there was some awareness that your mom would say you take them.
0: Yeah, I think she was aware.
3: Um, What about for you? What was that like for you? Oh,
0: for me, well, for me, (laughs) for me, um, you know, it was a different time. Right. And we didn't talk about those things then. Right. Mm like we do now. The conversations that I have with my children, especially when they were even much younger, were already very different than you had in the 70s, whether you were talking about, um, um, you know, private issues, um, whether it was what was happening in a marriage or definitely not with, you know, same sex marriage or anything like that. So we didn't sort of know what was happening. You know, we just I don't remember really a moment that and I think my father probably did have that moment of sitting us down in some way, just knowing my father. But I don't remember that Mm -hmm. moment. Um, And by that time, he'd fallen in love with Chip. Um, After the Odyssey, he choreographed um, Bubbling Brown Sugar, which was his biggest commercial hit on Broadway. He choreographed eight shows for Broadway. And three Tony nominations, and um, so, in uh, auditions for Bubbling Brown Sugar, the last man to to walk in an audition at the end of a very long day was this six three gorgeous black man with this silky baritone voice, Chip Garnett. They hired him, and that was the person that my father would fall in love with after my mother, and so they, um, so he was then in, in New York, me and ship lived in New York and my, my brother and I would come, I don't know, was it every week, every other week we would, we, and we'd be the only children on the plane The children weren't on planes then, you I know, see. and the, and the, the, um, what do you call, not the waitress, the stewardess, the, the stewardess would come yeah. and sit with us as they used to do when children were on the plane. And, it became sort of our normal to, to be on this plane. And then we, you know, come back. And um, then when that happened, when, when they sat down about the divorce, then we moved to New York and lived with Chip and my father. And. Um,
3: and, and were you aware what, what Broadway meant at that point? I mean, because this, this show was on Broadway.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. Yeah. I think I was certainly aware of what, Broadway meant. I mean, even when my father was doing the Odyssey, uh, one of my most vivid memories is actually meeting Yul Brenner backstage. Yeah. And throughout our growing up, um, you know, my father brought us into everything that he did hmm. every rehearsal process, audition process, opening nights. Um, he would often ask me what I thought about certain things. So we were always very involved and welcome in his process of creating. So we grew up running through the house and, you know, flipping on the seats of all of the, the theaters, you know? So we knew what that was, and he made sure that we sort of knew who, you know, what that was and who these artists were and um how special they were and all of those things, you know, and the history behind it. Um And then at that time, at 11, I... um well, books. My father was a voracious reader and finally got me to read. And then he'd given me a, a diary and I've kept a, a journal, which I write in every morning, almost of my life. I have them all over the place since then. And so instead of talking about things the way we do a little bit more of today, that became the... um repository for everything that I didn't understand and was confused about because at that time Chip was either introduced as my father's friend or sometimes uncle and that's what it was you know and when my mother um you know sort of walked away in that way to take full responsibility of us she completely walked out of my life so I've only seen her four times in about 40 years. And uh, that's the story that I'm working on now. So at that time, I just, that's when I decided that I wanted to dance seriously. So it was writing and reading, and then I wanted to go into ballet. And I'd been around it since I was born. They would bring me in a basket and sit me in all their studios Um, So it was always a part of my life. And even when they had their own school, I would take classes. But I wasn't really serious then. Um, But when that change happened and we moved to come to live with my father, which I adore. I adored my father. My father was everything to me. So that was a great part about what was happening. Um, And my mother had been unraveling when things started to change. We left our Beautiful brick brownstone and in on West Brookline Street and moved into an apartment and she was, you know, just not present and so I would find ways to also not be present by spending time with a, you know, a friend of mine and um, I can
3: I can very much understand what that must have been like for you for, to have a parent who was not present and an
1: admitted journalist every single day. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. I've always been tempted to journal and I'd start a little bit and then I'd stop, but you've been doing it all your life. That is amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, that's sort of what got me through a lot of things that I didn't understand at that age when we weren't talking about those things in the seventies, you know, um, and I'm glad that I was introduced to that that I had that and so as a result of doing it all these years um I I rarely go a day and when I do um I feel off wow because it really it, it's sort of my my juice like my coffee my the way that I kind of um just get started. I don't know any other way to say it, you know. And then sometimes I do at night, not always, but the important thing for me is the morning because I'm a morning person. So,
1: so that's how you start your day by journaling. Yep. And is it the thoughts of the day before, the thoughts of the day forward, the thoughts of
0: all of the above? You know, if if there's something that's stuck out, then um, it becomes that, or just you know, a kind of list. I mean, one of the things that it does for me is I'm a I'm a very in my head kind of person, yeah. so it allows me. And since I don't dance anymore, um, another way of just getting it out, you know, like therapy. I mean, it really was, it has been a kind of therapy for me.
1: Yeah, you say you weren't really talking about it, but you were. You were talking with your with your pen, and mm-hmm. somebody was listening.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: that's really. That's really cool, Doctor Joji. Is that a strategy that you talk with a lot of patients of the benefits
3: of journaling? Absolutely, um, because if once you get into the habit of it, I think as Alexis is saying, mm. it really becomes so cathartic every day that you get to just sort of express yourself. And what's different about it than talking? is you don't need to share it with anyone if you don't want to right and then right say this with, say. no it's
0: just saying you don't have to edit and censor i mean that's the idea of it you're just like Ugh. if if that's what you yeah. want to do or sometimes you're feeling very you know pretty and then you write that but it's it's up to whatever you feel like you want to do not thinking about anyone else reading it
3: yeah and there so many stories that we have every day that we can write. Tom, you, you, you're a writer as well.
2: Sure. I, I'm not much of a journaler. I guess you could say I, 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 I self edit too much. I'd say to be a journal, Mm. journal keeper. I always have to writing a, whether it's even on, whether it's a tweet or a text, I always have to make sure it's like, eh, is this, is this worth someone reading?
1: But isn't that the whole point of journalists journaling, right? I mean, posting it on on Twitter or what have you you're you're publishing it here you're right. really just putting your thoughts on on paper mm. and kind of yeah because I'm
0: actually like you Tom I'm very uh, meticulous and um, like to do things correctly especially when it comes to writing and grammar is actually not my strong suit so that's a place where I finally don't have to think about those things and write in my crazy backwards way that I write and People say, that doesn't make any sense. You put in the verb at the end or whatever it is. I don't know.
3: (laughs) So so did you bring some of your journaling into Not So Black and White? Was that a different writing process for you?
0: So after my father died, I have a very dear friend, Gabri Krista, who's a dancer and choreographer. And um, she gave me a book called Wild Mind by Natalie Goldberg and Natalie Goldberg is really the woman who kind of cracked wide open um, daily writing practice through prompts you know that she she gives and um, and also you know a great writer and so for two years I did only daily writing practice before I even started working on the book and um, then I would follow Natalie because she then was still in New York and I'd go to her workshops and then later I would follow her to Taos and do like silent writing retreats and things like that she's she's really special so so yes that that helped me to um her lack of a an overused phrase, you know, peel the onion. How to sort of go deeper and closer to what we try to do sometimes in memoir is um get to that that place, you know. Um, and that really served me, and I continue to use it. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've given so many books to other writers and other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So to To go back to the story, then we were at the at the part where your dad had just met chip mm-hmm. How did that have an influence on you? Did you have some sense of what was going on as you're going back and forth from Baltham to new york and
0: um the relationship and my father living with this man at that time was very confusing, mm. and um because of the lack of of conversation, and I did everything I could to get him gone. I was awful. I was really awful. Um,
3: There's a conflict between you and Chip.
0: Yes, because I, I told you I adored my father, and it was very, I always think about Eugene O'Neill's Morning Becomes Electra, mm. which is about the daughter and the wife who are vying for the attention of the husband husband and father, <laughs> And it was sort of that similar kind of feeling. Um, but what I came to realize, um, I thought Chip was my nemesis, you know, my Achilles heel, that, that everything in my life was, was because of this man. And what was this, you know? And, and my father would, there's actually a moment in the book um, where my father and I have a moment um, and I think I'll never find anyone in my life, and I think I'll always be alone. I'm in college, and my father sits me down, and um, we have a conversation. And I don't want to talk, but he he knows me, and he goes, "Come sit." And um, he said, "Why are you crying?" I was crying uncontrollably, and he said, "Why? What's wrong? What's going on?" And I said, "I, I can't I can't you know I was just crying." He said, "No, say what is it? what is it." And I said, well, I I feel like I'll never find anyone. He said, well, why would you say that? You're going to find so many wonderful people in your life, blah, 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 as parents do. And I said, because I, you know, I, I don't want to explain Chip. Like, I would never bring people home. And he said, well, you know, I can't apologize for Chip. Chip, Chip. loves you and Parker like his own children. And he would do anything in the world for you.
3: Parker's your brother.
0: Parker's my brother. And um, he said, not everyone's going to like it, but it is what it is. And, um, you know, this is your home and you should never feel ashamed to come here. So, that... That helped to clarify something, but it wasn't until years later that I realized with another kind of maturity that really what I was grappling with and fighting against and why I was being so awful was really the absence of my biological mother, because Chip came to the table with nothing but love. He and my father were 10 years apart, and Chip walked into the middle of a very awful divorce. With these two young children. And he never walked away. Never.
3: On page 62 of your book, you say, it was hard to warm to chip because of his determination to please and to be accepted. (laughs) That's a powerful image that when somebody was trying so hard to please and be accepted, Mm. did you not believe it or I mean why was that so hard and how did that connect with your mom
0: I mean I think first of all was the age you know this is like you know, 11, 12, 13 14 didn't have my mother during those important years but didn't really make that connection um, he was that other woman man uh, step Person that you, you know, that I just viewed as sort of the evil person. Like I just, I think in my confusion and anger about something that was actually kind of misplaced, I just dumped all of that onto Chip.
3: And it was who were you actually angry with then?
0: Well, I'm saying my mother, the absence of my mother, you know, but it took me a long time to realize that.
3: And again, that goes back to when you're. 11 and she says no you you take them
0: yeah you take them and then gone now she and my brother have a very different relationship they still to this day talk constantly wow but i was um i was the one who um from a young age i would confront her you know those rare moments she'd call on the phone um, she'd say, you know, I do all this for you and all of this is for you and your brother and I love you and all of this. And I said, no, you weren't. No, you didn't. No, you weren't. And she would hang up the phone on me from age 10. And she mm-hmm. still continues to do it. That's sort of mm-hmm. the way that she copes, is by hanging up on me.
3: So we were talking about the the history and in the book, um, There's a part that that I actually do want to focus on, which is when Chip winds up, it sounds like he has some nervous breakdown. And your dad, who, you know, is this brilliant choreographer, able to, you know, I mean, choreography is is an incredible art where you basically have a vision, an image of what should move and how they move sounds like he felt completely powerless at that moment
0: yeah he did is
3: that, that the case Am i missing something there
0: no that's absolutely the case um chip had been in europe in one of my father's shows a show that i also went into but we sort of yeah. i left and then chip came um a night at the cotton club in amsterdam and um this was on the heels of a very disappointing contract with um a manager that was supposed to really catapult his singing career and it didn't happen and that disappointment was already sort of was setting the tone for what was going to happen and he went into the show and there were two people in particular in that company who were just out to sort of undo him mm. and and he he was undone, and he had a nervous breakdown overseas, and um, it was horrible. And that later, uh, we realized um, that he was diagnosed as being bipolar, and um, it was very difficult. He was, you know, taking his mouth so that he couldn't speak, and he because he couldn't stop the chatter in his mind, and then he couldn't stop talking, and then. The bipolar he was in these manic episodes, and we'd go out and buy fifty hats and twenty thousand scarves and um and then getting him back to the states was another challenge um Thank God we weren't like locked down with security the way we are today because that would have been a whole other thing he had to be tranquilized to to get on that plane um But yeah, that was the moment, and it actually happened um, the last time that we were all together before I came back to the States. We were in Amsterdam, and we all had a a Chinese, um, went to a Chinese restaurant together upstairs. We were like the only ones there, and Chip was seeing demons and spirits and, you know, made up and... Um, thought he was Michael Jackson with like a, a glove on his hand. And, um, and we were just trying to get through the meal. And at the end of the meal, um, my brother Parker and ship went downstairs and my father just looked at me and dissolved and was like, how am I going to get through this? And it was really in that moment it was the first time that I'd seen my father who was like a superhero that vulnerable in that way
3: and and it was during that episode that chip shared the secret
0: it was actually when we they went back to the states to get the help that he needed he went into again saint vincent's but rice five which was the psychiatric wing and i came back to the States to help them. And my first marriage was falling apart. And, um, Chip was in rice five and we were at home in Jersey, my father's house in Jersey, my brother and my father and I, um, I think, or I was in my apartment and Chip could make a phone call and they were still trying to get his levels, you know, the, the medicine leveled. Um, and he was he was still in a manic moment when he called us. And in this moment, he shared that he and my father had been HIV positive for 10 years, which we had no idea about. We knew how many people were dying um, left and right, but we didn't know that Chip and my father were HIV positive, which was incredible at the time that they survived for 10 years i mean my father missed the first cocktail in 95 he died in 94 you know and i have friends to this day who um are still here with us because some of those same cocktails that then you know they made better and all of that so so that's how we found out in one of his manic um, states on the phone and my father's furious with him.
3: So did they?
1: Um, how? How? From 1984 to 1994, they were. HIV. No, no,
0: no. Oh yes, yes. 94 mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So what were they doing for treatments back then? Everything. Yeah.
0: Everything but AZT, because AZT was the only thing that was offered, and my father and Chip knew that that was off the table. They were not interested in that.
1: Interesting. So
0: they went to the Chinese medicine. I mean, anything you can think of. And they both had um, a doctor, Dr. Paul C. Bellman, in in the village at the time. He was called the Pope of Venice Village because um, St. Vincent's Hospital and Dr. Bellman um, were, that was the place that you went. If you were dealing with AIDS at the time, that was the hospital. And um, Dr. Bellman was the guy who was helping, who was um, just trying to do everything he could to get people through this pretty much blindly. Um, so, yeah, they tried everything, you know, drinking aloe and stuff that today is like, you know, nothing. But at that time, it was kind of people weren't doing all that stuff yet.
3: Right, you know, I'm I'm just wondering, retrospectively, whether it was bipolar or whether it was really an HIV-induced psychosis. If it was after ten years, right.
0: Well, we never... I mean, no doubt that was happening at least two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, when COVID happened, I I immediately went to AIDS because to me there were lots of similarities in the insidiousness of it. The mm-hmm. The nuance, the what we don't know, um, the after effects of these things, so.
3: So um, we're, we have so much more to talk about, but we're coming up to the end of time. So the I am approach, you know, we are influenced by four domains, the home domain, social domain, biological, and IC domain. Because these domains interact, small changes can have big effects, so Lexis, based on what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners?
0: What small change that you mean the listeners might have?
3: No, that you can it recommend make- to them. Yeah, a- recommend to oh. them based on what we're talking about, about mm-hmm. secrets and...
0: Mm-hmm. Um, You know what? It's like, especially in the time that we're living... Um, I feel like it all comes back to such simpler things. And um, I just, I think of love. I mean, yeah, it's cliche, but it's um, it's sort of getting back to that at the end of the day. And again, it's how we started, you know, with this story. Um, and my father is, I think, a great example of how he, loved whoever he loved Mm -hmm. um you know be it man woman could have been a beautiful plant for my father but (laughs) um yeah i would say we need more of that love's in need of love today stevie wonder he got it right
3: and that sort of leads into the second truth of the i am that everyone's interested in what you think about them which has an effect on their brain so you control no one you influence everyone you get to choose. Lexus Wilson, the last thirty seconds. What kind of influence do you want to, be? What kind
0: of influence I want to be? I guess I I hope that I can be an example of creativity. Um, and the importance of that. I feel like it's so necessary. Um, the creatives and I hope that I'm leaving some kindness behind. Thank you.
3: Alexis Wilson, thank you so much, folks.
0: My it's, pleasure.
3: It's incredible.
0: Not so black and white. Did she do it for long or she tired the